Well, okay. Well, beautiful singing, and uh, welcome to Red Village Church. If I'm not met you, my name is Aaron, and uh, the preaching pastor here, and uh, we're glad that you're with us uh, today. So if you have a Bible with you, if you'd open up to the book of 1 Samuel. So today our text of study comes from 1 Samuel 25. If you're visiting, so 1 Samuel has been a book that we've actually been working through for a year and a half or so, I guess, and so we've just been kind of slowly going chapter by chapter through that, and so today... Uh, we're in chapter 25 of 1 Samuel. And also, if you're new to the Bible, 1 Samuel is kind of in the first, I don't know, quarter of the, book of, of the Bible, something like that, in, in the Old Testament. So 1 Samuel, chapter 25. Uh, this morning, we're going to work through uh, the entire chapter, but I'm just going to read the first three verses here, and then I'm going to pray and uh, ask the Lord's blessing on our time. So this is what the Word says. So in verse 1 of chapter 25, Now Samuel died. And all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him at his house in Ramah. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. And there is a man of Moan who was in business at Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep, 1,000 goats, and he was shearing the sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and his wife Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful. The man was harsh and badly behaved. He's a calebite. Okay, so that's God's word for us this morning. Let's pray. Lord, it's good to be together with your people in this time and in this place. And uh, Lord, uh, the reason we're here is we want to hear from you, from your word. And so we pray that you indeed would speak through your word, through the power of your Holy Spirit. Help me, God, to be a good communicator. Please keep me from error. Please help the congregation to be good listeners. And we do pray that the Spirit would use this time uh, to draw us uh, to Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Okay, so this morning, let me start off. I read you a few different Proverbs just from the Old Testament book of Proverbs. So this is Proverbs 12, 23. A prudent man conceals knowledge, but the heart of fools proclaim folly. Proverbs 13, 20. Who who walks with the wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Proverbs 18.2, a fool does not delight in understanding, but only revealing his own mind. Proverbs 18.6, a fool's lips bring strife, and his mouth calls for blows. Proverbs 23.9, do not speak in what do not speak in the hearing of a fool, for he will despise the wisdom of your words. Proverbs 26.12, do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for him. Proverbs 28, 6. He who trusts in his own heart is a fool, but he who walks wisely will be delivered. So I could give you more, but I'll stop there. Now, if I was to ask you if there's a theme of the verses I just read for you, it's a pretty easy theme to pick out. Those verses all clearly talk about fools. And for us, that is an easy theme to figure out from the verses I just shared with you. It's perhaps it's also easy to figure out that theme when it's lived out in the lives of others. Or at least we perceive where others are fools, where we can quickly declare others to be fools. But it's not always as clear for us to see was when we actually are the ones fulfilling that theme, where we actually are the ones living as fools ourselves. So that, that's something that's not as easy for us to see. Which brings us back to our text this morning, a text I found incredibly interesting text, primarily because of how the text starts out, which we'll get to more in just a second. However, the vast majority of the text we're going to work through today details the story of an easy-to-see fool named Nabal, which the word Nabal, by the way, is actually a word that means fool or foolish or boorish. 
We actually see that in verse 25, if you want to take your eyes there, our text even tells us that. Now, we even mentioned this name, Nabal, has caused scholars to wonder if that actually was his name, meaning that's the name his parents gave to him. It does seem a little strange that parents would name their son Fool. So some have wondered if perhaps this was more of a nickname that he acquired uh, in his life. Perhaps he was named Nabal because, uh, by others behind his back, just because he embodied foolishness. It's hard to know how he got the name, but as mentioned, it's easy to see that he, he was a fool. Okay, now before walking through the passage, let me real quick set the context where we left off last week. So King Saul, who also plays the role of a fool in 1 Samuel, Saul was on his ongoing obsessive quest to kill David. And this is because David was a threat to Saul's power and control. And what we read last week in the text, David was put into an ideal position actually to kill Saul, to seize power and control from him. But we read in our text last week, rather than taking the life of Saul, David trusted the Lord, he held on loosely to the things of life, and he spared Saul's life. Even David even instructed his men to do the same, to not take the life of Saul. So in our text last week, as Saul learned what David just did for him in terms of sparing his life, we see that Saul had some like worldly sorrow, where at least like in the moment he admitted that he was wrong. Uh, he admitted that David was a more righteous man than he was. So for a moment, David gave up his obsessive quest to kill David, and Saul returned back home. And David relocated to a different place of safety, which I mentioned last week, I think, is an indicator that David did not trust that Saul was genuine in his repentance. Okay, so that's where we left off last week. So now today, starting in verse 1, if you want to look back with me, as mentioned, we're going to work through this passage. And also let me mention, if you're visiting, I just work verse by verse. So just keep your Bible open and just kind of follow along. We're just going to work verse by verse through this passage. So verse 1, which is where I do find the most interesting verse in this passage. We just simply read the words, Now Samuel died. And all Israel assembled to mourn for him, and they buried him at his house in Ramah. Now, what I find is so interesting about this verse, which is really just a half a verse in our English translations, is just how it's like presented here in the text. Like this is news here. This is like fairly massive news. Yet it's just kind of sandwiched between the story of David and Saul that we looked at last week uh, when David was in Engedi, and our story today we're about to work through on foolish Nabal. So kind of like hidden between those two stories, like there's almost like this. Oh yeah, almost forgot to mention during this time that's when Samuel died. And everyone got together, they mourned, and uh, we buried him at his home. But not only is he going to be back to you know, what I want to talk more about with David here. And this is just so fascinating to me. That's all that's written. Just a few words, and then back to the next story. After all, this is, this is Samuel, the great priest, the great prophet, the great leader over Israel before Saul came on the scene. Samuel, who later on in the New Testament is listed among the heroes of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, the one who later on in church history, like we named this book, 1 Samuel, as well as 2 Samuel, after him. Right? A giant figure, a massively important figure. But just a few words. It tells us he died, sandwiched together between a couple longer stories. Right? No details how he died. No details how old he was. No recounting why he was so massively important. Like no obituary here. Just he died. We all got together, and we buried him. You know, at the end, i got some thoughts for you by way of application, but just take note of that. That's all it said about the great Samuel dying. Oh, keep going. Back after verse 1. After Samuel was died and buried, we read that David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran, seeming a new hiding location from Saul. And as David relocated yet again, we read that there's a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel, 
which here this Carmel is referring to a town located between Ziph and Moan. So this is not like where Elijah uh, defeated the so-called prophets of Baal in humiliation. So this is a different place. In our text, you see a few details about this man who was doing business. Uh, we see that he was rich. Uh, so rich, he had 3,000 sheep, 1,000 goats, uh, which means he also was probably a pretty shrewd businessman. We also see that while he's on business in Carmel, business that related to the shearing of his sheep enterprise, we see that he was there to like sell the wool of the sheep. Verse 3, as we keep going, we see that this man's name was Nabal, which I already mentioned, perhaps was a name given to him at birth, but maybe potentially just an earned nickname. So even though he was like shrewd in business, this man was a, was a fool, maybe too shrewd for his own good. Keep going in the text, we see Nabal had a wife named Abigail, who unlike her foolish husband, we see that Abigail, she actually was wise. The text tells us that she had discernment. In fact, not only did she have discernment, the text also tells us that she had physical beauty. Now, as the author introduces Nabal and his wife Abigail to us in the story, I think he's doing it in such a way, he's like setting up a little bit of like comparison, contrast, or for us to compare and compra- uh, contrast between these two as the story develops. And we can feel confident this is the author's intention. This is written in verse 3 of our text. You want to take your eyes there. So we read, like, unlike Abigail, you know, unlike the word of contrast, unlike Abigail, the man Nabal, this man, he was harsh. He's a harsh man. And he behaved badly. Right? This is the reason why he was such a fool, a harsh, badly behaved man. In our text, we see that he was harsh and badly behaved, even though he was a Calebite, which may remember the Old Testament story. Remember Caleb was with Joshua, who worked as a spy or a scout for God's people before they entered into the Promised Land? So that was like a, a man of honor and courage, a very important figure in biblical times. And so for Nabal, this is where he came from. He was a Calebite. He would have came from a family of honor, and so I did kind of wonder if this honor, that not only is an honor that maybe Nabal took for granted, but maybe like foolishly abused. I was kind of thinking maybe someone was like, maybe some type of like rich trust fund kid, you know, who was given so much more than everyone else, yet completely abuses that which was given to him. Perhaps that was foolish Nabal here, verse 4. As businessman Nabal was shearing the sheep, we see that David was out hiding in the wilderness. And now he's hiding out in the wilderness. He learns what Nabal is doing. So we read that he sent 10 of his men down to Carmel and to go find Nabal to send greetings, which we see in verses 5 and 6. As the 10 men found and greeted Nabal, they were to greet him in peace, David instructed them, uh, to declare peace to him, peace to his house, peace really to all that he had. Right? This is here, David, as he sent the 10 men to Nabal. He sent them to, like, to be a friend, to come to him as a friend, not as a foe. Verse 7. As the men who declared desires... Uh, for to Nabal. You also see that they were to make their intentions known, why they came to Nabal. You see in the text, first they do so by maybe telling a little bit of backstory of how David knew what Nabal was up to in terms of his business venture. So in the text, the ten men of David were to tell Nabal that David learned about Nabal and the shearers that he had because some of the shepherds actually spent time with David and his men, where David and his men actually did no harm to Nabal's men. In fact, the text tells us that these men of Nabal, they missed nothing all the time that they were there. Meaning David let Nabal know that he was actually taking care of his men when they were with him. In the text, David also told them that if Nabal didn't believe this, Nabal was actually to go and ask his young shepherds, who no doubt would have verified indeed this happened. That indeed, David was good to them. That's our text, back half of verse 8. David to his ten men, after communing this backstory, then they were cut to the chase. 
They were told to David, or tell Nabal of David's intentions, why he sent them to him, with the hopes that the ten men would find favor in Nabal's eyes in such a way that Nabal would then give food back to David and his men, uh, food that they were enjoying on a particular feast day. So here in the text, basically, David to the young man, go to Nabal, show him honor, come to him, show him that we want to be a friend, help him see that we've already showed honor to him, and then hopefully in return, he will honor us. Hopefully in return, he'll honor us in such a way he's sharing like, his incredible wealth with us to give food to put into our empty stomachs. You know, with the thought, perhaps at least share enough food to pay back what David already shared with Nabal's shepherds when they were with him. Keep on verse 9. So we read the instructions in place. The ten men of David did exactly as they were told. They went to Nabal, they told him what David told them, and then they waited for Nabal to respond, assuming that he would respond in kind. What we see in the text, that's actually not what Nabal did. Rather, this harsh, bad behavior, foolish man, responded, responded back to these guys in verse 10 with, like, rudeness, with arrogance, by saying, David? Like, who's David? Like, who is this son of Jesse? Like, who is he to me? Like, why, why is he coming to ask me to give him these things? And this year, I don't think this is Nabal, like, questioning, like, who is David? Because he, he, like, legitimately didn't know who David was. Remember back previous passages we had in 1 Samuel? Remember David is a very popular, famous figure in Israel. He was the one that had songs written about him. So I think it's safe to assume Nabal, he would have known who David was. He just didn't care who he was. Nabal felt he was too big for David, too important for David, and no need of David. In the text, David was nothing more than only a servant who broke away from his master. Like he's a nobody in Nabal's eyes. Nabal felt David was actually below him, underneath him. Verse 11. Nabal to David's men. Like, seriously, what do you expect I do here with this nobody David? Are you really suggesting I take some of my hard-earned bread, water, and meat that I killed, that I did shearing work to acquire, and I'll just, like, kind of give it to you guys? You know, a bunch of guys I don't know? Like, come to me, is that really what you thought would happen? That I would give you some of my fortune, some of my empire, by just giving you this? Like, this year, I think, is where we begin to see. He's just, like, too shrewd for his own good. Verse 12. As Nabal rejected David's request, you see, he does so by belittling them, shaming them. As he does that, uh, he gives a report back to David, you know, basically to tell them, no, I'm not going to give you this food. So the guys we see in the text go back to David. They tell him what happened. And David responds to his men in our text now. Hey, men, I want you to strap on your swords because we're going to go and now defend our honor. So text, we read that 400 men, including David himself, strap on swords and went after, with the intention of going after Nabal, with 200 staying back to watch over their baggage. So as this was happening, as David is like rallying his men, we see as the story continues to develop in verse 14, one of the young men of Nabal who benefited from David who is able to go now and connect with Abigail, who has mentioned this is Nabal's discerning and beautiful wife. And in verses 15, 16 of the text, the young man shares details with Abigail of all the good things David just did for him and the others. How David kept them safe. How David cared for them night and day. Which here, I'm sure this like touches the heart of Abigail. She could discern that David, famous David, like indeed he was good. He was kind-hearted. 
Uh, verse 17, as the young man finished up the report of David's kindness, we see that he also wanted Abigail to know what Nabal foolishly just did. How Nabal foolishly belittled and shamed David in the request sent to him. As the young man gave this report to Abigail, the young man concerned that because of Nabal's folly, like he understood harm is now going to come their way. And not just in Nabal's way, really, in our text tells us that the entire household of Nabal would suffer harm because of Nabal. So one of the Proverbs I started out this time reading, the companion of fools will suffer harm. So in the text, as the young man shared what happened with Abigail, we see he also shared his opinion of his master to her. As he calls Nabal his master, he calls him a, a worthless man. In the end of the, uh, verse 17, he was particularly worthless because just of how unapproachable he was, because no one could speak to him. I'm sure perhaps this refers to like the ten men of David, how they could not speak to Nabal to reason with him. I also wonder if this is maybe others who worked around Nabal, who has like a history, like trying to help Nabal, but no one can speak to him in ways they can reason with him. I wonder this week, maybe this is refers to the young men or the young shepherds who tried to be an advocate for David towards Nabal, only for all of this to fall on deaf ears. Prideful, arrogant, worthless, foolish Nabal. Like he already made up his mind. He was not going to help David. And he made up his mind regardless of what others might say. Friends, this is a real character trait of a fool. As I mentioned earlier, he's like wise here in his own eyes. He only takes counsel in his own heart. Unapproachable, unwilling to listen to advice. That is a fool. That was Nabal. Keep going. Verse 18. As Abigail heard this news from this young man, we see that she immediately springs into action here. She's trying to help atone for her worthless husband, her foolish husband's mistake. So in the text, we read that in haste, right? She ain't wasting time here. In haste, she goes and takes 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five already prepared sheep, five sheets of parched grain, 100 clutches of raisins, 200 cakes of figs. Like she gets this huge feast ready, probably more than what David ever would have expected or asked in the first place. And we see in the text that she places it all on a donkey, and she gets ready to send it to David, where she would go with her servants on this trip. In the text, we see, as all this is happening, we see that she doesn't tell any of this to Nabal. Like, Nabal knows nothing was taking place here with Abigail. For Abigail, she wanted to keep her foolish husband here in the dark. She just could not trust him. She knew if Abel found out what was taking, Nabal found out what was taking place, like not only would he put an end to this plan that she's putting together, he probably would have just made things, continued to make things worse for everyone. So for Abigail, the best thing to do was to do all this behind his back, to do all this in secret, to do everything just so he's like her husband is left in the dark. This is here, this already shows us that not only did the servants of Nabal think he was, or uh, servants of Nabal think he was worthless? Her husband, or her, his wife, Abigail, did as well. She couldn't trust him with any information. He's that much of a fool. Keep going, verse 20. With the feast all packed up, sitting on donkeys, Abigail went her way under the cover of a mountain, I'm assuming tried to stay out of sight of her foolish husband. And at first read, she came upon some of David's men, where, assuming she introduced herself to them, but then in turn, they shared with Abigail how David just processed Nabal's response to his request, which was a process filled with like bewilderment, 
just being dumbfounded, where these men shared with Abigail how David thought to himself and to the others, like, why did we just guard this man's men in the wilderness? Like, really, why did we show kindness in such a way that really were putting us at risk? Only for this man to now return us with this great evil. Everything we just did for this worthless man was in vain, which led David to further processing, but not just with bewilderment, but now we see with deep anger. So as he processes with others, what just happened? We see in the text, he says, So may God do so to him, to Nabal, and more, what Nabal just did to us, and strike him down in judgment. Doing so with such a judgment that by morning, not one of his men who belong to him shall live. And the more David thought about this, the more he talked about it, the more frustrated and angry he became at this foolish man. So angry, he wanted to strike Nabal down. Keep going in the text. As this information is being communicated to discerning Abigail, I'm sure she understood this is not like hyperbole here. Rather, she understood unless she can somehow change David's mind, indeed, David would follow through on these intentions, and harm would come to Nabal and to his entire household, which was the fear in the first place that drove her to David. Right, this was the fear of the young shepherd who clued her in what was taking place. They, they understood the fool Nabal. These actions would bring about real harm. So verse 23 of the text. This information was given to her, how David just processed what took place. We see that Abigail now spots David. And so once again, right away, she hurries over to him. Where she gets down from the donkey, she falls before him and starts to plead with David to spare the men of Nabal. Which you see in verse 24. So not only was this woman discerning, but she's incredibly courageous. Which is a character trait we talked about a couple weeks back. I mean, she is so courageous. She is like laying her life down to serve other people. Courageously, sacrificially, she's pleading with David, begging him to let the guilt of her husband actually fall on her instead. To let the guilt of her worthless husband not be the reason why the men die. Really, she's courageously standing in the gap, pleading for the men, telling David in the text, if she knew what had happened, she would have acted so differently than her worthless husband did, and she would have repaid David for her kindness. Verse 26. And she pleaded for her men. We see that her pleas were in line with David's character. And more importantly, these pleas are in line with the character of God, the goodness of God. So we see in the text, as the Lord lives, as you, David, live, the Lord in his goodness, understand, has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving way your own hand, David. And because it now let your enemies, let those who seek to do evil towards you, David, be as my foolish husband, Nabal. So now, David, because of the goodness of the Lord, because you, David, have been good, please, David, please accept this gift that I'm bringing to you, which refers to the feast. Please, David, take it. Give it to your men. And if you accept my gift, verse 28, please show forgiveness to the trespasses of your servant. Please do not hold this against us. But David, my Lord, may the Lord, may it make you a sure house. Because unlike my worthless husband, David, I know, 
I can easily discern that you are actually fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil should not be found in you all of your days. No, say again. The author's really setting up this story for us to see differences between foolish Nabal and discerning Abigail. They're, they're so different. While Nabal provides a foolish example for us to mark and avoid, here Abigail, she's providing an inspiring example for us to try to emulate an incredible model to follow after. Keep going. Verse 29. Abigail to David. And she basically prays over him. David, if men rise up to pursue you and seek your life, the life of you, my Lord, shall be bound, be bound in the bundle of the living, in the care of the Lord your God. Which, by the way, that, that is a great phrase. Right? The bundle of the living. Which is phrase, I do wonder if maybe David thought back on as he wrote Psalm 6-9. In that passage, he talks about like, the book of the living. Then in verse 29. As David was in the bundle of the living being cared for by the Lord himself, Abigail prayed that the lives of the enemies of David, the enemies of God, that the Lord would surely sling them out as from the hollow of a sling. So one of the things we talked about last week, coming back here, like justice indeed will come. God in his time, he will bring about justice towards his enemies. So this prayer of Abigail, she's basically praying that David would once again trust in the judgment of God, that indeed it would come at the right time. Verse 30. And when the Lord has done to my Lord David, according to all of the good that he's spoken of, which I'm sure refers to chapter 16, we looked to uh, several weeks back, when David was anointed by Samuel to be the prince of Israel. In the text, when the time of that plan is being fulfilled, Abigail to David, because you have not shed innocent blood, at that time then you have no cause for grief and pangs of conscience for taking matters into your own hands to try to bring about salvation. Rather, you will be able to rest well, knowing that it was the Lord who was at work here. He is the one who dealt well with you and with me. Right? This is a very passionate plea here by Abigail, where she really is standing in the gap to plead with David for the men, doing so with incredible wisdom. But really, she appealed to David in very similar ways to the previous passage last week, how David appealed to his men when they spared the life of Saul as they held on loosely, waiting for the justice of God to come, trusting in the Lord. That's basically Abigail's wise and courageous appeal here to David in this scene, to trust in the Lord. Keep going, verse 32. As David heard this plea from Abigail, he is cut to the heart. Cut to the heart in ways that he responds with a prayer of praise towards the Lord himself. Our text, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Abigail, blessed be your discretion. And blessed be you, Abigail, who have been used by the Lord to keep me this day from blood guilt and from trying to work out salvation in my own hand. We know it's only God can bring about salvation. We cannot. This year, this is so different response here of David than Nabal. Mentioned Nabal, no one could talk to him. No one could plead with him in ways that he responded in godly ways. Not even his wife. They said again, like she had to like sneak around to keep things hidden because of how foolish, how worthless he was. Because his foolishness led him and others to harm. But here, David. As he hears this pleas from Abigail, 
who, by the way, he just met, he could humbly see and understand she was right, that she was speaking truth here. He could see the evidence of God's grace on her as her words were preventing harm. In the text, as David hears these wise words, he continues to be so different than Nabal as he leads the council. Verse 34, For as surely as the Lord God of Israel lives, which, by the way, the Lord does live, we don't serve a dead God, there is one true and living God, and as he lives, he is the one in his grace restrained me from hurting you, discerning and beautiful Abigail. For unless you did what you just did, and that you hurried to meet with me, to plead with me, if you did not do that truly this morning, I would have sought vengeance and killed everyone. I would have sinfully held on tight, took matters into my own hands. But the Lord used you to keep me from evil. Which, by the way, is a reminder, the Lord does use means to accomplish his will. He used Abigail's hurrying. He used her discernment, her acts of courage and wisdom to restrain David. Verse 35. As David not only received the words of Abigail, he also received the feast that she brought to them. And as he received all these things, he gave to Abigail words of assurance and acceptance. Abigail, go in peace to your house. And see, I have obeyed your voice. I have granted your petition. I've said this a couple times. I don't say this again for emphasis. This is an incredible act of wisdom and courage here by Abigail. When she learned of David's intentions, I'm thinking what she could have just like done nothing with this, or maybe she could have just done things to try to attempt to save her own neck before David came and attempt to kill all Nabal's men. Like she she could have got out of dodge, but instead courageously she went to David to plead with him. And she does so in such a wise, humble way. She's able to convince him to let the Lord fight his battles. Keep going, verse 36. After Abigail is able to win over David, we see she heads back to Nabal. And as she gets back to her husband, we see that the fool continues to play the fool as Nabal threw an incredible feast in his house. A, a feast that was fit for a king, which indicates it would have been no issue for Nabal to help David when he came as a request for some food. Nabal was like overflowing here with riches, throwing a feast for a king. With all the riches that he had, he wasn't using them in ways to bless others. Rather, he's squandering these riches on himself here. In the text, as Nabal is throwing himself this over-the-top feast, we read that he had way too much to drink, to the point that our text tells us he was like very drunk. You can just picture this fool like slurring, slobbering, stammering. Like he is a drunken mess here. And Abigail knew she was like wasting her time. She's trying to talk to her beyond-wasted husband concerning David. So we read that she just waits for him to sleep it off, right? to sleep off a bit of the drunkenness. So then she would go to him in the morning when the wine had gone out of him. And then she would tell the things to him about David. So in the text, in the scene, as morning came, Abigail, Abigail went. She told her foolish husband the news. And we see that he became stone-cold sober. We're for, finally, maybe see a little bit past some of his, stu uh, his stupidity. Where finally he started to understand the ramification of his actions for shaming David. And as he became stone-cold sober, it appears that he almost like he had a heart attack. The text tells us his heart dies within him. 
to the point that he was like, physically became like a stone. You know, maybe his body went into some type of comatose shock here, where it appears that he was in this for like 10 days. As we read that on the 10th day, then the Lord came. And he did strike Nabal by taking his life, which proved that Abigail was right. The Lord would indeed fight the battle for David as harm came Nabal's way. Which, by the way, may a little side note, hopefully is an ongoing encouragement to us, whatever battles we face. Friends, just trust in the Lord. Trust in his timing. He is the victor. He will prove to be the victor. We just kind of trust in him. Verse 39. As the news of Nabal's death made its way back to David, we once again see that David recognized the hand of the Lord over the situation. So we see he prays a prayer of thanksgiving to give honor to the Lord. So the text, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged me the insult I received from the hand of Nabal. Blessed be the Lord because the Lord is the one who kept me from wrongdoing. Blessed be the Lord because the Lord has returned to Nabal the evil upon his own head. At the end of verse 39, we read that as David learned about Nabal's fate, we also see that he sends for Abigail. Our text tells us he made her his wife, which wasn't his only wife, which we'll see actually more in the second of the text. But let me first point out here. So as mentioned, throughout 1 Samuel, David has been a good model to us in so many places. But this year, this is actually the start of some really awful and sinful actions of David, where he had some real issues with like sexual purity. Listen, friends, scriptural is clear. Marriage is one man, one woman, to the exclusion of all others. That's it. Scripture is also clear in the book of Deuteronomy that this clear teaching of Scripture is also for the king, that the king was not above the law. Deuteronomy 17 says the king was to have only one wife. So this here, this act of David, this is an act that snowballed into greater and greater sexual sin, which, which sin always does. And I think this might be particularly true when it comes to sexual sin. This is why we've got to cut it off. So David is a good model for us throughout much of First Samuel. He's not the perfect model. He is a sinner. He is one who needs a Savior just like all of us do. Verse 40. With David's desire for Abigail to be his wife, he sent a message to Abigail from his servants to tell of her intentions. So verse 41. As Abigail hears his information, she rises. She bows her face to the ground again to pay homage, saying that, Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord, which is basically her way of saying yes to David, that she was going to serve him however he fit, including by being his wife. So the response to David's servants, we see her get back on the donkey. She takes five young men to be her attendants, and she follows David's messengers back to David, where she becomes his wife. And finally this morning, our text ends, verses 43 and 44, if you want to take your eyes there. This is the information where she was not the only wife of David. So if you've been with us in the study, we've already met Michael, who is mentioned in verse 44 of our text today. So she was the daughter of Saul, who David married. So we read about her in chapters 18 and 19. In the text, it appears that Saul actually took her back from David to give her to a man named Laish of Galam. In verse 43, we see that there's also another wife that David had, a woman named Ahilnomen, and that's how our text ends. Just kind of tragedy in some ways setting up here for David. Okay? Now, before we close, per usual, I do want to organize some thoughts in terms of how to apply this passage. And this morning, how I want to do that, first of all, I just want to talk about wisdom. 
So I'm going to do that first by talking about Samuel and that short half of a verse that is mentioned about his death. And then I'm going to talk about Abigail and David. And then from there, I real quickly, I want to just talk more about uh, foolishness uh, as foolishness that we see enabled. And as we talk through this quickly, I do want us all to be humble here. And hopefully humble enough to see enable maybe something that we actually see in ourselves. And if we see this in ourselves, these traits, we just need to repent. We need to turn from them and stop playing the fool. Okay, so first with wisdom here. So here's some traits from that. So in our text first, wisdom helps us understand that one day we will die and life will move on without us. Okay? And I think that's at least in part is a takeaway, the few brief words about Samuel dying. Right? These few brief words sandwiched between two longer stories. It just helps us to see and understand that one day we will die and life will continue to move on. I mean, let's just think about this again. This is Samuel. Great prophet, priest, Samuel. Hero of the faith, Samuel. Man who had two books of the Bible named after him in his honor. Yet even after he dies, life moves on. Friends, how much more would that be true for you and me when we die, how life will move on? And let's be honest, unlike Samuel, all of us, after we die, we will be quickly forgotten. Friends, that's actually a part of living a life of wisdom. It's just to understand that reality. And to understand reality in such a way that Scripture tells us, we are to like number our days in light of that reality, that one day we will die. Life will move on. So spend your life wisely. Second, kind of tied to this. When we have wisdom, it allows us to see a bigger picture. Not just get so like tunnel vision or fixated on certain things right in front of us. So in this passage, Abigail, she's perceptive. She could see more than that was just right in front of her. She could see and understand how certain things would lead to other things, like how foolish, arrogant Nabal could bring harm and damage to others. Friends, if we're going to be wise, we must see a bigger picture where we understand like our decisions, our words have consequences for good or for harm. Third, as we walk in wisdom, Wisdom will help us humbly respond to truth. But that's David here in the story. Abigail spoke true words to David in terms of letting the Lord fight his battles. And as the truth hit David's ears, he responded to that truth in humility. And he changed course of actions. Listen, be wise doesn't mean that you're always going to have the right answers, the right counsel, the right truth. But it does mean that when you're confronted with the truth, you humbly respond to it. Fourth, wisdom appeals to the Lord and his salvation. So when we're wise, that we will do. We will appeal to the Lord and his salvation. And this is true. Salvation only comes from the Lord. So in the text, David was not to trust in himself, but to trust in the Lord, trust in his salvation, trust that the Lord would indeed fight his battle. And for us, we ultimately know this is found in the cross of Jesus Christ. That's the wisdom of God and salvation for all who would believe. It's found in Jesus. We trust that he is the one who in the end actually fully stepped in the gap for his people. Where Jesus fully took upon himself the judgment that we actually did deserve by our foolishness. He steps in the gap by dying on the cross to only to rise again on the third day. Where he pays the penalty of our sin. Where he's able to fight and defeat our sin, including sinful foolishness. So that through Jesus, through the wisdom of the cross, we might be forgiven so that we can become a friend of God. 
So through his death, through his resurrection, Jesus could prove once for all that he and he alone is the one who's mighty to save. Friends, we can't save ourselves. That's foolish to think that. Wisdom is found in the cross. Jesus saves. Scripture is clear. There's no other name given among men where salvation is found. It's only in Jesus. Which is why we must turn and trust in him to call upon his name. Friends, any and all wisdom, it starts here, it ends here with Jesus Christ crucified and risen. This morning, we've got to be discerning enough to see that, that we all need Jesus. He is wisdom. Friends, I've got to tell you, if one does not see their need for Jesus, that is the great folly. If you think you don't need the cross, that is foolishness. To think you don't need Jesus, that is the beginning and the end of all folly. Rejecting Jesus, him crucified and risen, it's, it's foolish to think that somehow by your own hand you can bring about salvation. That somehow by your own strength you can fight the battle of your sin. And it's a fool who says, Jesus? Jesus? Who is this Jesus as if I need him? So here this leads to the last part I'm going to finish up here, just with some traits on folly, what a fool looks like. And said again, as we go through these traits quickly, I just want to ask to not focus on others where you might see these traits in others but just to humbly ask the Lord to search your own heart to see if maybe you're playing the fool. So first, fools take counsel in their own hearts, meaning no one can speak into your life on any situation. You always have to come to conclusions on your own. And friend, if that's you, you're in danger of being a fool. That was Nabal in this text. No one could talk to him. David's ten men couldn't talk to him. Nabal's shepherds, could not talk to him. His own discerning, beautiful wife could not talk to him. His counsel only came from his own heart. That's foolish. Second, fools are those who are not trustworthy. So if you're always like finding out that people, maybe including those closest to you, are always keeping things from you, where you feel like you're always in the dark in every situation, it could be a tell. Maybe others are starting to see you as a fool. That's exactly what Abigail did to her husband in this text. You know, based on what we know of Abigail's character, I don't think she kept things from Nabal because of her own issues. They were kept because of Nabal's sinful foolishness. It's hard to trust fools. Third, fools are those who are short-sighted. That's Nabal in the text. He could not see a bigger picture when David's men came to him. He didn't understand how it would be good and right for him to help David. He didn't understand how fellowship, friendship with David would provide long-term help for him. All he could see was that was right in the moment. And he didn't want to give up any of his food. That's that's all he could see. Extremely short-sighted understanding of the situation. No clue, no understanding how his actions would have detrimental effects that would ripple. Fools, that's all he can see. So short-sighted. Fourth, fools are those who are arrogant towards others. In that they're so arrogant that they think everyone else is the fool, that they've never done anything foolish. And the text, Nabal, he's always assuming he was right. And he assumed everyone else was always wrong. And in his arrogance, he would just belittle others with over-the-top arrogance. Friends, fools are they're arrogant. They're proud. They always think they're right. Fifth, fools are self-centered. 
So as mentioned in the text, Nabal is rich. He had plenty of means to respond to David's request. But rather than seeing this opportunity to be like more blessed to give than receive, which the scripture tells us, we see in the text, what does he do with his riches? He throws himself a self-centered party, one fit for a king. And that's what fools do. Everything is about them. Always about them. Incredibly short or uh, self-centered. Let me just one more. Fools are those who cause harm. And not just self-harm, but often harm that spreads in the life of others. Like others suffer harm because of fools. Right in the text, Nabal, his foolishness was so great that he brought harm to himself. And if God did not strike him dead, if God did not work through Abigail's plea, the rest of his house would have had the same fate. Great harm. Friends, foolishness, it's, it's harmful, it's destructive, not just to ourselves, but often towards others as well. Most commonly, those closest to you. Fools usher in harm. So for us, Red Village Church, may God give us the grace that we need to be wise. So that the theme of our church family is not sinful foolishness, rather for the glory of God that we may be humble and wise to run and continue to run with haste to Jesus Christ. Which, by the way, is the name given to him by his parents? Name given by the angels, Jesus? Because indeed he did embody what his name means. That the Lord is salvation. That Jesus does save. Because he took upon the harm that we earned upon himself so that we could eternally benefit from an incredible feast that he's going to throw for his people for all eternity. Let's pray. Lord, please forgive us for when we have been foolish. And Lord, please help us to not be wise in our own eyes. But Lord, please help us to be wise to our Lord Jesus. Help us to be wise to your word. Please help us to be humble, to respond to truth. And uh, Lord, please just help Red Village Church just be a place that brings much honor, much glory to Christ. And uh, Lord, we know that one day we will die. But so reassuring to know that through Jesus, even though we die, yet we will live eternally to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.